All right, if you've closed your Bibles, I want to invite you to please open them back up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. There is a lot of scripture that we're going to cover today, and we won't sit there and read over it. But Mary is married down with the children today. Man, awesome. I'm calling two people out. They're down serving with the kids. Richard, could you tell Mary we got homework? 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, all of it. We are going through a series about David, the life of David, and we've been doing it for the past five or six weeks. And we're finally hitting on, I'm sure some of you probably asked, David and Bathsheba, like when David like really messed up and sinned. Yes, we are. We're going to talk about it today. And we're going to look at what he did. And hopefully my prayer is, and scripture talks about this in the New Testament. The Old Testament was written for us as an example 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And there are things about the Old Testament, there's tons of stories that can be very challenging and very hard. The family I lived with in Mexico, the Mexican family I lived with, my Mexican father, He was not a believer, and he told me over and over, I can't accept the Bible because there's too much blood in it. There's so much violence in it. And I would try to explain to him, yes, but you got to understand, it's history. And it explains and it shows us the story of God's people in the Old Testament. And not everything in the Old Testament did God approve of. But we don't need to be ashamed of our past In our history, we put it into the light of Jesus and let the gospel reveal its truth. And so in today's passage, today's story about King David, we're going to look at it and it's gross and it's nasty and it's sick and it's wrong. But all truth is God's truth. And it helps us to see and understand what the saints of the past did and didn't do. And then we trust the Lord Jesus for the strength and grace to follow Jesus' footsteps. Before we do that, I got a fun little story. In third grade, well, actually, I got a question. Does anybody, what, the, what does the phrase, you're going to get a licking, you're going to get your licks, what does that mean? A what? What, Silas? A spanking. Okay, in our day and age today, spankings or licks aren't really looked, they're kind of frowned upon today. When I was in high school, I got licks, I got spanked in high school by the coaches for getting a C in school, for talking during class. Think about what it was like at home. In third grade, third grade, if you were here a couple weeks ago, throwing rocks at cars, okay. In third grade with another friend at his house, We were building a fort down in the basement. Sheets, blankets, cardboard. And his parents told us, you leave the buckets of paint alone. Carpet on the ground. Way better carpet than what we have in here. So what did we do as third graders? As we're putting sheets over chairs and the pool table and the TV, what are we putting on top of the sheets to keep the sheets up? Buckets of what? Paint. And I'll never forget, I can still see it. My friend Mark, he picks up this big old gallon of paint and he's like, Doug, look what I can do. 
And guess what the bucket of paint decided to do? Peter Pan right off his hand. And the, the lid opened up. And all this white paint, as white as Adam's shirt, just came oozing out. And as little 10-year-olds, I think you're 10 in third grade, what did we do? We froze. (gasps) We didn't move. We finally came to reality, freaking out. I'm freaking out. And uh, guess what we received? Licks. Have you ever been spanked by some of your friend's parents? I did. My friend got three, I got one. And then they loved on us. Consequences. There are consequences to all of our actions. Good consequences and bad consequences. There's a verse, you reap what you sow. Now, if you know scripture, you know that many times bad and awful things will happen to good people. That's just a reality. The prosperity gospel, which comes from the pit of hell, basically says that God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy. That is a lie. God has not created us to be happy. He's created us to be a holy and eternal relationship with him through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to heaven, we will be overwhelmed with the joy and happiness of God. But here on this planet, Jesus did not die on the cross to give us a better life. He died on the cross, first and foremost, to glorify his Father in obedience to him. Second, to reveal the Father to this broken and dying world. Three, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the price and make atonement for our sins so that we could be adopted as our father's sons and daughters. And then Jesus rose from the dead. So with the gospel, when we follow the gospel, when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus promises trials, tribulations, and persecutions. The apostle Paul told Timothy, anyone who aspires and desires to live a godly life, will suffer and be persecuted. Do you hear much of that preached in our churches today? No. The reality is we will suffer. And one of the hardest things that we go through as Christians is when we walk in obedience and we love Jesus and we follow him, and yet we still suffer. We suffer for doing good. And that can be really hard because we look at scripture and we look, you reap what you sow, which is a biblical truth. And many times we feel like we're reaping goodness and obedience and humility and love and we're following the Lord and yet we we encounter suffering. So we have to understand the biblical tension that many times we'll walk in obedience and still suffer. But many times we will suffer the consequences of our own decisions. I got licks in third grade by one of my best friend's dad because we disobeyed. We didn't do what they said, and we started using buckets of paint to build our fort. I didn't spill the paint. That was my friend. But I was part of the action and suffered those consequences. Right here, King David, and we're going to look at it. So if you've closed your Bibles, let's go ahead and stand back up because I think some of us might get some 
pie the case. What's that called? Cheesecake for lunch today. We need to burn some calories before we go get it. So here we go. Chapter 11, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. We just read it. But we're going to walk through this. And before we read this, just quick overview. David is now king. He's been king and he's been serving faithfully. He's been loving the Lord, following the Lord. He's been serving and leading as king with truth, with justice. He's not perfect by any stretch. There's been challenges and there's been difficulties, but he is following God. And we've seen several chapters where he's doing the right thing. We even saw last week when he blessed Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Finally said it right. But now we have a massive major turning point for the rest of David's life right here in this chapter. Verse 1, this is what God's word says. In the spring, when kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. What's that one word right there at the end of chapter of verse 1? But. Y'all can have a seat. But. There's a massive problem right there. Back in April of 1970, the pilot of Apollo 13, Jack Swigert, he communicated, he said, Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13 was supposed to get to the moon, but because of problems on their space capsule, they never got there and they almost lost their lives. But Houston, we have a problem. During the spring, when kings would go out with their armies and fight in battles, which is what this verse says, but right at the end of verse 1, it says, but what? David remained in Jerusalem. Why? All the kings go out with their armies. Do what's right because it's right. In college, I played basketball, and we were terrible my freshman year. We were the worst team in our conference. We were wretched. Our coach was fired, a new coach came in, and in the spring or the fall, in preseason training, the head basketball coach was not allowed to be with us in training. So they put a football coach in charge of us. We were in the pool, on the track, sprints, and lifting weights. This coach still coaches at my college at Wheaton. I love him to death. He was an amazing mentor. My brother's nephew is there at Wheaton, and he took a picture of this coach, and he says, he's still here making disciples. And I remember, coach, oh man, coach would always say, gentlemen on the line, and we'd be on the track. Don't avoid the inevitable. And he would run us to death. I ended up messing my knee up, ended up quitting, but my roommates were still on the team. By senior year, we were second in the nation during the regular season. Why? All the hard work, all the training, sowing the right things, doing the right things, Training and eating right. Yes, a little bit better recruiting helped. But the team put the work in and they saw those benefits. They did what they were supposed to do. King David was supposed to march out with his armies in battle, but he chose to stay home. We don't know why, but he's getting ready to step in it. It says one night right here in verse two, one evening, David got up from his bed and he strolled around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And it says right here, she's very beautiful. And it says that David sent to inquire of who this woman is. And then he sent messengers to go get her. And then it says he slept with her. She went home and then she informs him, I'm pregnant. 
Now, I want to be very clear. Bathsheba is her name. She was not doing anything wrong. She had just finished her period, and in the Old Testament, there were laws, bathing ritual laws, for all women after the menstruation time, that they'd have to bathe themselves to be clean. That's what she was doing on the roof of her house, which was a very normal thing to do. This is all on David. And some theologians would even say that David raped her. He definitely took advantage of his position and his power and his authority. He not only sent to inquire, hey, who's this beautiful woman I saw naked? But then he sent messengers to go get her. And he probably did it all in secret, not in the secret. His messengers knew he went and got her. But maybe a private meeting with the wife of one of his 30 mighty men, Uriah. All in a cloak just to get her alone so that he could take advantage of her sexually. And that's exactly what he did. It is all on him, not her. She is the victim, 100%. Because as a a woman in a kingdom where the king has the final say, it is on him. Am I clear? This is David's sin, taking advantage of this woman who's innocent. He sexually abused her, and now she's pregnant. Now, there are several things that we can take from David's sin. The first one is this. David was not doing what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to be out with his army, with his commanders in battle. Instead, he stays home not doing what he's supposed to do. If an alcoholic wants to get off of alcohol, don't go to the bars. Now, there's a whole lot more he needs to do. But that's the first thing. David was not doing what he is supposed to do. And there's a couple passages. One is 1 Peter chapter 5, 8. This was written millennial or almost a millennial after David lived. But it is a spiritual truth. It's for us. It's for you. And it was for David too. Where Peter commands us, he says, be sober-minded. Be alert. Be awake. Your adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Instead of David going out with his army, he's at home. It's in the evening. He gets up. He decides to walk on his roof. Okay, maybe all of that is innocent. I question if it is. But the text doesn't tell us. So let's just say, okay, David innocently gets up to go on the roof of his palace. He's not thinking any evil thoughts. But he has an adversary, the devil, who's looking to devour anyone. And David is not being alert. And he sees this woman. Now, there's another scripture passage in Ephesians, and it more talks about anger. But in Ephesians chapter 5, this is what Paul commands us, be angry and do not sin. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but many times our anger will quickly turn into sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Some translations will say a foothold. I'll never forget when I was little, my older brother would tease me, chase me around the house. And if I could get inside my room or even a closet or the bathroom, if I could close and lock the door before he could get his foot in the foothold, I'd be safe. But if my brother got his foot in between the door and and closing the door, he got me. A foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold. And David was not alert. He had forgotten that he's got an enemy looking around, seeking to devour And he allowed the evil one to have a foothold in his life. He saw Bathsheba naked. And he should have, and he could have trusted in the Lord's power, said, nope. But instead, he inquired about her. Then he sent for her. 
So his sin keeps magnifying and magnifying and magnifying over and over and over again. There's a phrase I've heard it said, you might have to. It takes two lie to cover a lie. Do the math. If we sin and cover it up, it's going to require more sin to cover up the first sin. And we keep covering it up and covering it up. So what does David do? And this is the homework for you guys. And I'm looking at the clock. Woo! We are going to be late to the buffet line today. But from chapter, from verse 5 to the end of this chapter here, there are several things. After Bathsheba tells David that she's pregnant, he's like, ooh. So he sends for Uriah, her husband, who's one of the commanders of his army. He calls him back to Jerusalem. And for two full nights, David gets him drunk, asks about how the war is going, how the battles are going. And then the first night, he sends him down to his house. Go be with your wife. Uriah sleeps at the doorsteps of David's palace with the servants. The following day, David asks, why didn't I brought you back? Take an R&R. Go be with your wife. Be at home. Get a shower. Spend time with her. He says, how can I do that when my Lord's armies and soldiers are sleeping in tents on the battlefield and I come back for R&R? Mm-hmm. So after that second night, when Uriah stayed with the servants at the doorstep of David's palace, David wrote a letter and he sealed it. And he gave it to Uriah to give to Joab, the commander. And in that letter is a death sentence for Uriah. Uriah was so integrous, he did not open up the note. But he goes back to the battlefield. He gives it to Joab, the commander. And in that letter that Uriah carried, but he did not read, King David tells Joab, you put Uriah on the very front lines and then draw back so he's killed. That happens. News comes back that Uriah is dead. David just flippantly basically says, well, that's just the way battle is. Some live, some die. Bathsheba finds out she mourns, and after the time of mourning, David then takes her in to be his wife. She's a month pregnant. No one's going to know. But here at the end of chapter 11, It's the understatement of the chapter, the very end of verse 27. It says, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Many times we consider God's silence to be his approval. Woe to us to think that. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. David knew exactly what he was doing. He tried to cover it up. He tried to cover up his laziness, his irresponsibility for not going out with his armies, his lust, his deceit, his sexual immorality, or even sexual abuse, and then his murder, all in the cloak of deception. Really quickly, Nathan in chapter 12 here, it says Nathan the prophet, who is one of David's mentors, spiritual mentors, he comes to David. He's like, I got a story to share. I got a parable. It sounds a lot like Jesus. He's like, there's these two men. One was super wealthy, had all the sheep in the world, and the other one was a very poor man. He had one sheep, 
And this one poor man considered this little ewe lamb like a daughter of his. He actually allowed her to eat out of his own plate, drink out of his own cup. He loved that sheep dearly. It was the only thing he had. And this wealthy rich man who had just hundreds and hundreds of sheep, a friend of his showed up. And he wanted to have a party for his friend. But instead of killing one of his own many sheep, he took this one sheep from this poor man and he sacrificed it, killed it, cooked it, and they celebrated. And it says like in verse 5 or 6 of chapter 12 that David was furious. And he says, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan says, that man is you. And then he kind of speaks for God. And it's what we read earlier. I took you out of guarding and attending sheep as a shepherd. And I gave you the kingdom. I gave you everything. And yet you've despised the Lord's commands. Nathan says, you're that man. And because of what you've done, David, what you did in secret will then be done in public. Richard, this is more homework. If you read the rest of David's life throughout the rest of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, the rest of David's life was tragic. David still loved the Lord and he repented. But he had one son rape a daughter of his who had third son then murdered the son who raped his daughter. Another son committed a coup. There was a civil war. There was a complete rupture in the kingdom between David and his son Absalom. Another son tried to usurp the crown again right before David died. And David, from this time forth, he never led again with confidence and humility, trusting the Lord. And when Nathan confronted David right here, and he says, you're the man, and we're going to stand right here, and Alanka and Chris and Matt, if y'all could go ahead and come on up. When Nathan confronted King David, and he said, you're that man. And he, I mean, he, Nathan lets him have it. And one of the things, dear brothers and sisters, is we need Nathans in our life, men and women in our life, who have the boldness and courage to confront us when they see us living in sin. To sharpen us. To speak truth with boldness and yet Humility. Oh, how we need people in our lives to do that. And then we need the humility to follow David and admit and confess, I have sinned. David said right here, I have sinned. Right here in verse 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The consequences, the immediate consequences is this child who is conceived was born sick and after seven days died. David fasted and prayed for that child. And after David confessed his sin here, and after the child wept, it says that David went into the house of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and he worshiped. That's one of the reasons David is called a man after God's own heart. David didn't try to clean himself up after he was confronted with his sin. David knew that he was a wretched sinner. In Psalm 51, if you open your Bibles, it'll be on the screen, but Psalm 51 was written by David 
after Nathan confronted him. And this is what David said, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and I've done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Now remember, this is the context of David having not been a faithful king, having lusted after Bathsheba, having slept with Bathsheba, basically raping her, having covered it up and murdered her husband and stolen her to be his wife. That is horrific sin. And David is falling at the feet of the Lord, his God, pleading for mercy. I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and the gladness. Let the bones you have crushed. Can you imagine for those nine, ten months that David was living with the burden of having been an adulterous murderer, how he felt inside? Turn your way of your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. God, create me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Chris, leave that right there. Go back to verse 11. I can imagine David is very aware of remembering what happened to King Saul. God took his anointing off Saul and ripped the kingdom from King Saul and gave it to David. And I can imagine King David is thinking of that. Will the Lord do the same to me? It is so easy for us to stand in judgment and look at David and be like, oof, I would never do that. And there's a balance because I know there's probably some of us that might stand in judgment thinking we could never go that low. And I want to warn you, humble yourself today. But there's others of us who are way down here And we're carrying horrific sins in our lives that no one knows about. And we're allowing Satan to squash us and press us down because we think that no one could forgive us. We believe that we've probably gone so far that God's mercy can't reach and touch us. But I can tell you there is no sin too wretched or too dark or too deep that the grace of Jesus cannot scoop down and lift up and bring healing and forgiveness. I want to encourage you today. We'll have a couple of our friends will be over here at the next steps. We would love to pray with you. And if you are carrying your sin, if you've hidden it, and you're too afraid to expose it to the light, bring it to the light. As Nathan said, the Lord forgives you. Now there might be strong, powerful consequences, but there's always forgiveness 
And there's always hope because Jesus has paid it all on the cross. We sang it earlier, the wonderful, the wondrous cross because of his great grace. And you don't have to allow the evil one, Satan, to devour you with false guilt or guilt that you can lay at the feet of Jesus and let him renew you, strengthen you, encourage you, and heal you. It's all about Jesus and what he's done on the cross. So as we sing, if you're down here and you can't look up, look up to the cross. There's hope. If you're way up here in self-righteous pride, humble yourself. God opposes the proud, but he gives great grace to the humble. Let us worship him.